Amen. So take your Bible and find 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Today we come to the last sermon in this series, Caring for Your Soul. And this is the most important sermon in this series, and the title explains why. I want to talk to you this morning about the salvation of a soul. Now, each week we've repeated eight important truths about our souls. You have a soul. It is uniquely you. It was created by God. It is your most important possession. It will exist forever, either in a place called hell or a place called heaven. Therefore, it is of the utmost value. God made your body, but he also made your soul. Your body and your soul are distinct and different. Adam said of Eve, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He never said, you are soul of my soul. Paul said, a man and wife are to become one flesh. He never said, one soul. The body is easily destructible. The soul is indestructible. And at death, body and soul separate. The body eventually turns to dust. The soul either goes to be with Jesus or eventually a lake of fire. Jesus said to the thief on the cross who trusted in him, Today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't mean the thief's crucified body. He meant his soul. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen was being stoned to death, and he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit or my soul. He didn't say receive my body. So nothing is more important than to know that your sins are forgiven and that your eternal soul will be with Jesus. So I want us to read these two verses as we consider the salvation of the soul. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The salvation of your soul. These verses show us, number one, the description of Jesus' work. Now, only man can love, fear, serve, and obey God. Only man can enjoy God. Only man has an eternal soul that can be saved or lost, and it is the sin of man that causes lostness. Any sin, all sin, every sin, has a high cost. And as an object lesson of the cost of that sin, God's law required that his people, in the Old Testament now, required that his people shed the blood of animals relentlessly. Animal sacrifice was nonstop. Sometimes the amount was extraordinary. 1 Chronicles 29-21 says 1,000 bulls, 1,000 rams, and 1,000 lambs were sacrificed in one day. 2 Chronicles 29-23, 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. Death and blood, death and blood. God went to great lengths for centuries to give an object lesson of the cost of one human sin. And here's the lesson. Blood has to be shed for sin to be forgiven. But Hebrews chapter 10 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So God used all that blood and death in the Old Testament. He used it not only to demonstrate the gravity of our sin. 
He also used it to point us to the one whose blood would be shed one time to take away all our sins, and that was his son, Jesus. There was a time when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew he was about to be betrayed into the hands of sinful and violent men. Now, just in your mind's eye, go from that agony in Gethsemane to the cross at Calvary. And on that cross, you will see God's concern about your soul. It's all in verse 24. Take a look at it, if you would. He said, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. His body refers to his sinless life. He never sinned, not once in word, thought, or deed. The cross speaks of his atoning death. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. So at the end of your life, someone will bear your sins. It'll either be you or Jesus. Now the person who tries to bear their own sins, they'll succeed. They will bear their sins forever in hell. The person who trusts in Jesus to bear their sins will also exceed. Jesus will bear them, all of them. You won't bear a single one, and you'll be with Jesus forever. It's a binary choice. It's one or the other. Back in Numbers 14.29, and if you want to turn there, Numbers 14.29, it gives us an Old Testament picture, a faint picture just a small example of man bearing his sin. The background is this. The Hebrews were freed from Egyptian slavery. God sent them to Canaan, the promised land. They got to the border of Canaan, but they listened to fear over faith. They disbelieved God's promise and refused to go. And in Numbers 14, 29, God said to them, Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, the entire number of you 20 years old and more, because you have complained about me. And then I swear that none of you will enter the land that I promised to settle you in. Now the book of Hebrews gives us a New Testament commentary on this. In Hebrews chapter 4, God said of that particular passage, He said, I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. That's a faint picture of man bearing his own sin. It's terrifying. But in Leviticus 16, we have an Old Testament picture of a substitute bearing our sin. The high priest was Aaron. If you want to look at that, it's Leviticus 16.22. The high priest was Aaron, and he was to make atonement for the sins of the people. So he laid his hands on, of all things, a goat. And he confessed all the sins of the people and the sins of all the people, and he sent it away into the wilderness. And Leviticus 16.22 says, The goat will carry on it all their wrongdoings into a desolate land. That goat was a picture of a substitute bearing man's sin, taking them away, never to be seen again. So you will bear your sin, or Jesus will bear your sin. In the fullness of time, God sent his son Jesus. Fully man and fully God, he lived under the law of God. He fulfilled every bit of that law. He lived sinlessly his entire life. Then he drank the cup of God's wrath for the sin of every soul who believes. He did that on the cross. 
And then his body was placed in a borrowed tomb. But Jesus rose from that tomb. He defeated death and he set us free from the penalty of sin. Then he ascended into heaven and the day will come when he will return to this earth. And in the meantime, this message of salvation, this good news for every human soul, is to be proclaimed to all people in Leavenworth County and all across the world. Proclaimed by you, proclaimed by me, proclaimed by us as a church. And the message is this. When a person repents of sin and turns to Jesus, putting his or her faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and believes his resurrection from the dead, the soul of that person is saved. Number one, the description of Jesus' work. Number two, the demonstration of Jesus' power. Now let's consider your past life before Christ. Verse 24 says we're to die to sin and to live to righteousness. So to die to sin, that speaks of our old, uh, our old uh, life. Now, many of you were saved as a child. So you may not remember much about your sinful life before Jesus. Your, your mom and dad might, but you, you won't. Most people, though, are saved as a child. That's one of the reasons we put money into children's ministry. It's one of the reasons we do the community carnival. It's a reason why we want kids in Awana and children's Sunday school. We want to give them the Word of God before their hearts are hardened by years of sin. We want them to learn to articulate and understand the gospel at a child's level. And then to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at a proper time to be obedient in, in believers' baptism. It's important to wait until they're clearly saved before they're baptized. They don't have to have a perfect understanding of baptism. I mean, who really does when they're baptized? You know, Matthew 28 doesn't say give them a Ph.D. in baptism. He says baptize them. But believers' baptism means on a child's level, they can demonstrate and can articulate salvation before they're baptized. I think more than ever before, it's important that we evangelize children. We need to reach children, and we need to reach them now. Children are exposed to more evil at inappropriate ages than ever before. We need to get to them first before their hearts are hardened by years of repetitive sin. This is one of the reasons we've talked about wanting to remodel our children's wing. I'll talk about this more in two weeks, but I want to speak about it just for a moment. I am loath to spend money on ourselves internally for more comfort. We have the life of Jesus. We have the love of Jesus. The lost world does not, so our focus always has to stay outward. Remodeling a children's wing is spending money outward, and here's why. The world, at least America, is kid-centric. Now, if you don't believe me, I could take it to some ball fields right now. We can rightly argue it shouldn't be that way, but we have to deal with reality. So our kids' area needs to be modernized and roomy and attractive. It tells young parents we care about their kids, and it tells a growing demographic we care about their kids, grandparents raising their grandkids. It's an outward step in evangelism, and I'll talk more about that in two weeks. But whether it's a child being saved or someone like me who was converted as an adult, 
None of us could die to sin or live to righteousness before we had Jesus. That's our past life before Christ, but now consider your current life with Christ. Verse 24, we're called to live to righteousness. Now, Jesus transforms the human soul. Every person who is saved has a new life in Jesus, and there's evidence that demonstrates that life. Unfortunately, I read today that people like us are harmful to society, that we're a drag on uh, progress, that we even hate certain people. That criticism comes from the lost who are spiritually blind. Look at the good in this world that has been done by people who have died to sin and who have lived to righteousness. Many hospitals are named after one of the apostles or have a biblical word like mercy in their title. And that's because Christians have been instrumental over the centuries in caring for the sick. The Antonine Plague started in Rome in 166 A.D. Maybe a third of the population died. It might have been smallpox. Families just abandoned their sick. Half-dead people were thrown out on the streets. People fled the cities to avoid the plague, but Christians stayed behind to help the sick. A century later, a second plague hit. This one's more famous. Dionysius of Alexandria was a pastor then, and here's what he wrote. The Romans fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, thinking only of one another. They took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, and ministering to them in Christ. Wherever Jesus' teachings have been heeded, that's a key word, wherever Jesus' teachings have been heeded, schools of higher learning have been established. It's hard to believe, but most of the Ivy League schools were once either divinity schools or Christian schools. Child labor has been outlawed, charities created, crime diminished, living conditions improved, injustices like abortion and slavery publicly opposed. I love the story of Chuck Colson. Now, many of you who have been around West Haven for a long time have heard me talk about him. He was known as President Richard Nixon's hitman. He would ruthlessly ruin the reputation of anybody for the sake of political gain. A friend introduced Colson to Jesus Christ. In fact, I think he was a CEO of Raytheon at the time. Colson got saved. He eventually started prison fellowship, getting the Gospels in prisons in America and all around the world. And next to the Bible, the books he wrote changed my life, which leads me to my own life. I got saved when I was 24. I'm not very proud of the life I lived before Jesus. But I sure am proud of what Jesus has done in me. Let's set aside all the noise that we hear today. And I want to ask you a question. Does Jesus change lives? I got down on my knees and cried out to Jesus to save me on a Wednesday night in May of 1984, and I have never been even remotely the same. Can you brainwash yourself by getting on your knees and calling on the name of the Lord to save you? In one two-minute prayer, can a person be completely changed for the rest of their life? Can that be explained away? That cannot be explained away by psychology, psychiatry, sociology, anthropology, economics, or behavioral science. 
There's only one way to explain that. That is the power of Jesus Christ who bore our sins in his body so that we might live to righteousness. Jesus is alive. His resurrection power still saves people. In two weeks, we're going to tell you some stories about Mexico and where we're going in 2024. I'm just saying, right, Nathan? They don't want to miss this. (laughs) When a person is saved, the Holy Spirit changes that person. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the first verse I ever memorized. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. It's a process, but there's progress. You grow steadily, consistently, gladly, and noticeably. You have ups and downs, of course, but you grow. Verse 24 puts it this way, that you live to righteousness. Not self-righteousness. Jesus' righteousness. Now, if you've been with us during this series, you'll remember that the who you are determines what you do. And the what you do is your lifestyle. So what is said about Jesus is important, but the evidence to substantiate those words is found in lifestyle. There is much failure great regret, and embarrassing sin in the life of every person here. Any hint of Christian perfectionism is unbiblical. No one ever reaches a state where they no longer sin. But if we have died to sin to live in righteousness, it means we will think, act, speak, and live differently than the world around us and we do that not by the power of our flesh but by the power of the risen christ working inside of you and i can see him working in so many of you it's the demonstration of jesus power so there's the description of jesus work the demonstration of jesus power and then the disposition of jesus people verse 25 For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Peter is writing to persecuted believers. And he's saying there was a time when Jesus did not bear their sins, but they returned. That word means to turn upon or to convert to. They turned to the one who created their soul so he can shepherd, as we've talked about in Psalm 23, He can shepherd and guard their souls. So let's flesh this out a little bit. What does salvation look like? Or Let's put it this way. How does a person die to sin and live to righteousness? Now, we don't have time to comprehensively answer that this morning. I'm going to give you just three parts. For a person to die to sin and live to righteousness, there has to be, number one, humility. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus was about to tell people how to be saved or how to enter the kingdom of heaven. He often used that phrase, the kingdom of heaven. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that verse speaks, of course, to life today, but it also speaks to where kingdom entry begins. Being poor in spirit means humility. What does humility look like before God? I mean, we've joked about this before. If you say, well, I think I'm humble, then you're not. (laughs) It's one of those elusive Christian virtues. 
But we can get a picture of this. A person who is not poor in spirit says, I really don't need Jesus as badly as others. I mean, there's no pressing need for me to make changes. I'm not that bad. I mean, my sin isn't as bad as others. Or they may go so far as to say, I don't have sin. Poverty of spirit is the opposite. It says to God, I know, I know I'm a sinner. I can't go to heaven on my best day, let alone a normal one. As Adrian Rogers used to say, I wouldn't trust my best five minutes to get to heaven. Poverty of spirit means you say, oh Jesus, have mercy on me. You're my only hope. And I recognize your gracious offer of deliverance from sin. So I will gladly and willingly give my life completely over to you. That's humility before God. Now, if a man or woman thinks that his or her sin is not as bad in the eyes of God as the fentanyl dealer or the people promoting drag queen shows for kids, or it's not as bad as the corrupt politicians, if, if any person believes their sin is not as bad as others before God, there is no poverty in spirit. And someone will say, hey, my sin is still not as bad as others. In the man-to-man horizontal realm, your sin may not be as bad as others. If I have a bad thought about you, it's a whole lot less damaging than if I murdered you. But all sin, any sin, every sin is evil in the vertical man-to-God realm. So to die to sin and live to righteousness, there has to be humility. Number two, conviction. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I have preached the funeral, especially in my first four years in the ministry, I have preached the funerals of many people who had no church home, I'll just put it that way. And I, I can remember some of the haunting statements that I heard from people. My daughter didn't go to church, and I don't know what she thought of Jesus, but she was a good person, so she's in a better, you got it, better place. My grandfather didn't have any time for this religious stuff and pastor now. We don't want a, a religious funeral or a long one, but we know he's in a better place. Whatever happened to the conviction of sin? Whatever happened to it? Whatever happened to trembling before God, a conscience guilty over sin, our sin, a fear that brings us to our knees to confess and apologize and bring a contrite heart to God, and not talking about other people's sin, not looking and saying, well, what about him? Or look at what they're doing. Not worried about what someone else is or isn't doing. It's a conscience shattered over my own sin. Whatever happened to that? Jesus said something that has to arrest our attention. You know, we read hard sayings sometimes in the gospel, and we just kind of, okay, and we blow by it. Jesus said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is? That's what he said. And just before that, he said, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And he even said, the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it and the way is broad that leads to destruction and many enter through it he's talking to us and yet do you know everyone that i talk to and i'm not referring to you i'm referring to people that i talk to about the gospel everyone everyone is going to heaven everyone whatever happened to conviction 
You know, in one sense, it is hard to get to heaven. You know who makes it hard? Jesus doesn't. Human beings do. There's no longer the fear of God. And therefore, when conviction comes, it just is brushed away like light snow. Conviction makes a person tremble and creates a desire in the human soul to follow the only one who can rescue them from their sin. It creates a, desire, a trembling before God, but it's not a trembling before God, oh, he must hate me. It's a trembling before God that says, I see your love and you're my only hope. No one can come to Jesus without conviction that makes them realize they are unfit, unacceptable, and unable to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that is when you see his hand open with great mercy, great grace, and saying, Come follow me, and your sins will be forgiven. Jesus did often warn about false belief. You know these verses at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, there will come a day when many people will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me who practice lawlessness. Those are people who may have done wonders, but they never had the conviction of sin. Genuine belief includes conviction. And Luke 15, the prodigal son, demonstrates this. The prodigal son, folks, was lost. He was not a good little boy who backslid and came back. And when he came to his senses, as the Bible says, and came to the Father, his conviction was clear. He said, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's when we get that attitude before Jesus. That's when we can enter the kingdom of heaven. Conviction, number three, faith. If we return to the shepherd of our souls, we have faith that he's the savior of our soul. Now, let me try to illustrate this a little bit. We leave Wednesday on a, on a, on a plane for Philadelphia. We're going to see our grandkids for a few days. And you grandparents know uh, when I say pray for us, you know what I mean. <laughs> Man, they wear you down after about four hours, and we got five days with them. We're going to have faith that the plane is safe, the mechanics are trained, the pilots are sober, and the air traffic controllers are competent. That's a lot of faith. When we fly Wednesday, we will be exercising our faith while we are on that flight. Present tense. If someone on that flight were to ask me, do you trust this plane? What if I said to them, well, I don't know. I'm never excited about planes right now. I'm not even excited about flying, but I did trust a plane once when I was eight years old. If someone asks you about salvation, the answer is that, well, back when I was 10 years old, I walked down an island, gave my hand to the pastor, and accepted Jesus into my heart. And I know I'm saved because I remember doing that right then and there. The Bible never tells us to look back at an experience experience as evidence of our salvation i can pinpoint the day when i went from unbelief to belief that doesn't mean i'm saved the bible doesn't speak about your faith in the past it's always present tense first john 5 13 these things i have written to you who believe present tense who believe in the name of the son of god so that you may know present tense that you may know you have eternal life Sure, there was a day and time when you first believed. You may not know when that was. But if it was real, you'll believe right now. 
I was saved in May of 1984, but the evidence that I am saved is that I have faith today. So here's the question. Do you need to be saved? Then let's review this. Number one, do you have humility, which is poverty of spirit? Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know your only hope is Jesus? Do you pass that test? Okay, then let's go to number two, if you do. Do you have the conviction of sin? In other words, do you have guilt in your conscience about your sin before God? Not a false guilt of something you were accused of or told was your fault. A conviction of your sin before God. If you get that test, let's go to faith. Do you believe Jesus lived a sinless life? That he died on the cross as a substitute to take God's wrath for my sin and your sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe he was buried and then rose again? And friend, you have what is necessary to be saved. And the Bible says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Don't wait for a feeling, a sign, or a nudge. Believe on him today. Well, how do I do that? I mean, you can pray a prayer if you want, but just believe. You say, Lord Jesus, I believe you. I give you my life. And then tell us about it, please. Because we want to encourage you. We want to show you how to take next steps. You can do that through that QR code or stop us before you leave. We want to really encourage you because, as I said, this is the most important sermon in this series, the salvation of your soul. Let's pray.